ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Ben Bravery is now a doctor. He wasn't planning to be a doctor. In his 20s, Ben was working as a zoologist. He was really enjoying it. But then Ben was diagnosed with a major life-threatening illness. He got the treatment he needed and he lived through it. Well, obviously, otherwise he wouldn't be here to talk about it. But although Ben was a scientist, he was in no way prepared for the experience of being a patient. A patient in a medical system that often communicates very poorly with people in its care. People like Ben, who was often left feeling confused and anxious. And so after this ordeal, Ben put himself through medical school to better understand what had happened to him. And now that he's a qualified doctor, Ben has seen firsthand the intense pressure that many doctors are under and how little time there is to focus on the patient-doctor relationship and his experience of being on the outside and then on the inside of the medical system has led him to write a powerful book and it's called The Patient Doctor. Hi, Ben. Hi, Richard. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And how are you, more to the point? How are you doing? I'm well. You're well? You're yeah. feeling good? Yeah, I'm feeling very well. well. Let's talk about where you grew up. You grew up in, in, in fabulous Logan, that marvellous magic land mm-hmm. between Brisbane and the Gold Coast, which is neither one nor the other, is it? Exactly. Logan? It is neither. It has neither the appeal of the city <laughs> or the Gold Coast. And it's kind of spread out on the Pacific Highway, stuck between these two worlds. Was there a particular trade that ran in your family? Uh, they were service oriented. So my grandfather was a draftsman, self-employed. I had a couple of aunts run Kentucky Fried Chickens, we called them back then. Another aunt ran the local RACQ branch. It was uh, very blue collar, very service oriented. So what was the attitude towards studying in the family? There were, there were books around. So, you know, the family's curious, but they valued earning over learning. There's a strong work ethic in my family, and the way to get ahead was either to buckle down and get a job, turn up every day, climb your way up the ranks, or go to university. The first one won each and every single time. People left school as soon as they could. They got solid jobs, and they stayed in them. Whenever I've interviewed zoologists in the past, they've always had this childhood playing with animals or investigating beetles and playing with whatever they can find in the back garden. Was that you? Yes, I am the cliche. (laughs) That's exactly how it was. I don't know where it came from. Nobody in my family is particularly science-oriented. No one's got a particular love of nature. I just was born with this compulsion to observe wildlife, conserve wildlife, love wildlife. Was your family on the same wavelength as you when it came to conserving animals and looking after animals in the family? Absolutely not. <laughs> quite quite well to part. Um, you know, it, this is Queensland, so let's talk a little bit about cane toads. Oh, cane toads, We, yes. we can't not. It's a tradition in Queensland of an evening to pop out with a golf club and <laughs> f- find yourself a cane toad or two. Uh, and that's something that I used to do with the family of an evening until all of a sudden I realised it wasn't very nice. And it probably wasn't the best way to deal with a pest problem. And so I, I, you know, I pitched this to my grandparents because it was mainly there, this huge sprawling backyard and all these little heads would pop up. We turned the floodlights on and we'd all run out there. And I said to them one time, I th- you know, I don't think we should be hitting them over the head and yelling out <laughs> four. I think, I think I've found a little method where we can freeze them and I'm going to fill up the freezer with cane toads and then in 48 hours I'm going to put them in the garbage bin and we'll wheel it out and we'll do it on bin day just so it doesn't, doesn't get stinky. Nan gave me a freezer downstairs and uh, she gave me some plastic bags and we labelled them toad. And uh, when the floodlights went on, I would rush out, try and get as many of the slimy buggers as I could, and then stick them in the freezer. And then 48 hours later, I'd put them in the bin. Eventually, Pop gave up with the golf clubs and my method prevailed. It was a little win for me. See, I used to freeze cane toads as well. You did? Yeah, I did. But the, the problem with that is, well, with my method, is that I'd forget about them. And they'd that remain in the freezer. Yeah. And then someone would pop around and open the freezer and go, dear God, what the hell is that? <laughs> that would be a horrible surprise. But, so, but on that point, oh, I was terrified. I didn't know much about biology then. I was terrified they'd wake up. I didn't fully understand that when she froze an animal, it died. And so I was terrified that I would put them in the wheelie bin and this poor little thing would wake up. Would wake up. <laughs> right, this groggy cane toad would be on your hands suddenly. Yeah, I'd, right. I'd listen to too many urban rumours. <laughs> so I had the second part of the plan, which was after 48 hours, I'd bring them out, open them up, and then chop them in half with an axe just to make sure they were dead. Nan really didn't like that second step, but, but she indulged me. 
Ben, you write that there are two Waynes in your young life. There was Wayne 1.0 and Wayne 2.0. First of all, tell me about the Wayne who was in your life when you were a kid, and I think that's Wayne 2.0, isn't it? Confusingly, yeah, that's the, the second, second Wayne. Yeah, tell me a bit about him. Yeah, so he was my sister's father. We're two years apart, Kim and me. My mother married him. Uh, he was a young footballer. He played for the professional league, actually, back in the 80s. And um, he had a few uh, vices. Uh, he liked to drink a lot. He got a bit carried away at times, found himself moving from club to club because of that. So mum and him were both 19, I think, when they got together. I fell madly in love. Uh, mum already had me. She wasn't yet pregnant with my sister. And they decided that that Wayne would just raise me as his, as his son. And when anyone asked, he was my dad and I was his son. And that's how things carried on for a little while. But he wasn't your father. He wasn't no. your biological father at all. No. Did you look much like Wayne? I looked nothing like Wayne 2.0. This was the funny thing. So I'm very tall. Uh, at the moment, I'm about two metres. Wayne is maybe five something. He's got kind of got pale skin. I've got a very nice Queensland tan. Um, he's a bit stockier. I'm a bit taller and leaner. We didn't share any characteristics at all. But when you're a kid, you're not, you don't really think like that. Um, he looked a lot like my sister and not much like me. What's your most vivid memory of him from your early childhood. This is where things get a little dark. Their, their relationship was chaotic. When you say chaotic, do you mean violent? I don't have strong memories of that. I have memories of violence, but not directed towards mum. The earliest memory, unfortunately, uh, I don't have many from back then, but the one that stands out is I was about four and he had taken us to cricket training. He was a mad athlete, very good at it, but he'd been drinking after cricket. And so on the way home, he was pulled over, RBT'd, found to be over the limit. And I didn't really understand what was happening. I just remember the blue lights and the red lights. And he was, they were sort of beside me in the back seat outside. They were chatting, there was two police officers and him. And they got into a scuffle. Fists were flying all over the place. He was fighting with the police, right? Yeah, yeah. Who, who attacked who first? I don't know. He lost, was pushed to the ground, head, head in the grass, handcuffed and taken away. So that's one of my, unfortunately, that's one of my strongest memories of him. What did that mean for you? And was, was your little sister with you there at the time? She was. We were holding hands in the back seat. So I was four, she was two. Luckily, uh, Wayne's brother was with us in the passenger seat. He had been drinking, but not as much. So he jumped into the driver's seat and took us to meet mum. Because at that stage, mum and uh, Wayne were off and on again. And we were living with mum, but seeing Wayne... So it was Wayne's brother's job to get us to mum and she happened to be running a little retail store in a big mall in southeast Queensland and uh, he kind of pulled up and dropped us off. Dropped you off at the front of the mall? Yeah. You were four? Yeah. And your sisters too. How did you make your way to your mum's shop? I knew where to go. So I grabbed her hand uh, and I led her in through the entrance. It was an entrance I was familiar with and I knew exactly which turns to make and when. And we rocked up to her shop. She was very surprised, very confused. She kind of ran straight at us and said, what's wrong? Why are you here? Where's your father? And I was just boasting that I'd made it. That's, you know, I'd, the emotion of that moment was lost on me. I was proud that I'd got my sister there, that I'd saved us. Was Wayne 2.0 around all that much after that? No, things were rocky. They um, ended up separating entirely and then divorced a little after that. We stayed in touch. Wayne tried. Uh, we tried. But it just got harder, especially once Wayne uh, married and moved on. How did you find out that Wayne 2.0 wasn't really your, your biological father? Not until I was 11. So I lived with the idea that Wayne 2 was my dad until 11. It happened by accident. I, the lie had got away from itself, I think, um, amongst the... Everybody knew. I should say that. Everybody knew except me and Kim, my sister. And I don't know if they ever had plans to tell me, but I know mum worried that I would find out and that one day she would have to tell me. She was on the phone one night chatting to a friend. I think she'd had maybe a little too much red wine. Her guard was down. We'd had a fight earlier about me wanting a new pair of jeans. And I crept out to see if she was talking to the friend about the jeans and whether I was going to get that pair in the end. And I heard her say, if he ever finds out one day he'll hate me. And I didn't have any context for it, except I really wanted a pair of jeans and I had no idea 
why I would hate her over the genes. Oh, you thought this was a conversation about genes? I did. Right. <laughs> when you're 11, your whole, your whole parent's world is about right. you, right? Right, and you didn't want generic genes. I did not want to... generic right. genes. Okay. I was just happy for genes, actually, right. Richard. Right. I, wouldn't, I didn't care what they were. And so I stormed back to my bedroom and she heard me close the door and came in. And she sat down on the bed and I said, I heard what you said, thinking this is all about genes. And she says, oh, I'm so sorry, Ben. I didn't want you to find out this way. And I had no idea what we were talking about. She starts crying. Her hands are shaking. And I think she just wanted it off her chest. And she told me that Wayne 2.0 wasn't my dad. She told me that she did know who my dad was and that she'd made a decision with Wayne to create this little lie to make everyone think that they were the perfect family. And then she asked if I wanted to meet him. Your real father, your biological father. The real Wayne, the original Wayne, Wayne 1. There was a Wayne 1.0. So this is the, the Wayne 1.0 is your, is your biological father. Yeah, so the story is very confusing. First of all, I go in thinking we're talking about genes. Then I realise that the Wayne I think is my father is not my father, but my actual father is also a Wayne. It's all a mix. So you were 11 when you found that out. I don't know, I wonder how that news hit you. It didn't devastate me. And I thought about this later on as I matured, but I never really gave the idea that mum had lied or had been forced to lie any space. I was curious that there was this whole other man out there. Wayne 2.0 hadn't been around much, and when he had, things weren't great. I think there was a yearning for a connection with a dad or a man. And the idea that there might be, a, might be one out there and that we have the same DNA was actually exciting. And the fact that mum spoke to him seemed amazing. And the fact that I could meet him, mind-blowing. And how did the meeting go? It actually happened the next day. The so very next day. He lived in Ballina and used to work on the Gold Coast. So mum said, oh, I'll call him up and we'll see if he's free. And he was. <laughs> he made time. And uh, my grandfather and my mum drove me down to the Gold Coast and I met him when I was 11. And how did that go when you met him? Did not well. No? <laughs> no. Why not? We were different. We, were, we looked the same. So I had that piece of the puzzle. But we didn't complement each other. He was, again, very sporty. He was a tradesman, a concreter, loved surfing, hadn't finished school, wasn't really into that kind of stuff. So we didn't have a lot to talk about. We had very little shared experience to mull over. It wasn't one of those connections, you know, you hear those stories where people get reunited after all those years where they find their long lost relatives and they click and they get it and they laugh at the same jokes and they tell the same stories. It wasn't like that at all. We felt like chalk and cheese. So what did you decide for yourself in terms of finding yourself a father figure? I kept the dream alive of one day maybe having a dad or a male figure in my life that played that role. And so I went looking, not actively, but I would screen men that came in, in through my life. And I was looking for a particular set of characteristics that I thought would compliment me. And what were they? Well, they couldn't be called Wayne. <laughs> that was rule one. <laughs> maybe not attached to mum would be that, a good thing as well? A really good thing. Mum tried, bless her. Mm. But uh, no, I needed something different. No, no football. I didn't mind if they were sporty, <laughs> but definitely no football. Right. No children of their own. That felt like an imposition, like I was going to be cutting else, someone else's grass. And they needed to be relatively calm. I had enough chaos, enough anger and violence. I wanted someone super stable, almost chilled. And how did you find this, this man? By chance, by chance. I was in a relationship with my best friend, uh, Cassie. We, we were together about five years. Her mother was dating this man who lived 500 kilometres away in Bundaberg. He was a social worker involved in uh, education. And I would sometimes, if I stayed at Cassie's, see him visit and we would have little conversations. We might play a bit of backgammon, um, listen to a bit of music we had in common. And over time, he and I got on really well. And I started to think that I had a real shot at this one. So over time, it took time, right? You, you can't rush this. You need to go carefully for two reasons. One, he didn't know I was looking for a dad, so that can be a bit of a shock for someone. And two, I didn't want to ruin it. I thought if I had a shot at it, I was going to take it slow and make it work. So 
one day I invited myself up to his place. He was never going to do this. He's very introverted, keeps to himself. And he knew that um, I had had difficulties in my past with men and he was wary not to upset me or trigger me in any way. He waited. I asked to come up. I was very nervous. It was in the break of university. Uh, I went up with my little bag, uh, moved into his spare room, and we hit it off. How? How did you hit it off? We just talked. We could talk about anything. We had similar interests and different interests, both academic. So he's got a social work, philosophy, psychology background. I was all biology, chemistry, ecology. So we could share ideas in these two different spaces using similar language or a similar approach. He would teach me about his topics and I would teach him about my topics. There was just a piece about being around each other, almost like two pieces of this puzzle had fit together. And I don't think he ever anticipated finding this relationship in his life, but he was very happy that he had found it. And so how did that relationship then evolve? It evolved slowly and and it's awkward. I'll be very honest about that. It's awkward. The first person I had to navigate was mum. So I had to tell mum that I'd found a dad. (laughs) (laughs) And she was both happy and disappointed. Happy that I had and disappointed that she hadn't. So um, I negotiated that. And then also she has to share now. So she's not been used to that before, right? So we're navigating a whole new relationship dynamic. Yeah, but she's brought up this great kid who's figured this out for himself. That must have been something that gave her a bit of pride. It did. It definitely did. And so she was supportive, definitely. Uh, He became a friend... And then I I dropped terms altogether because I didn't have an appropriate label. And eventually you just start saying dad. And then you formalize it in Father's Day cards and introductions to friends. But it took several years before we got that comfortable with things and and before we could let go of the idea that we weren't actually biologically father and son. So then you have to go through this thing where you, this, this transition where you say, he's like a dad to me. Exactly. And then you go, he's my dad. Exactly. That's exactly how it happens. So you did zoology at university. Mm. What did your family make of that? Well, the disappointing thing for them was when I said zoology, they thought zoo. And a lot of people assume that zoology is someone who works in a zoo. So they were disappointed that I wasn't going to be a zookeeper (laughs) because that's got appeal, right? You're cleaning elephants, you're hosing out the panda cage. That's that's dramatic. That's rich life. Uh, No, I was going to sit at a desk and read textbooks and maybe study an animal (laughs) in the future. So once I corrected that, they were supportive. There's still this tension, though, between what's that going to get you and what are you going to be able to do with that and are you going to get a good job and why don't you just stay here and work your way up? So you did your honours thesis on the Saturn bower bird. Mm. Now, that that implies they have a bower, of course. How does the male Saturn bower bird go about courting a lady bower bird? The male bowerbird builds a bower, as you implied, which is a stick structure about 30 centimetres high. So the first thing they do is they find a spot on the forest floor that's got just the right amount of sunlight because they want this thing to glow. They want it to shine. Then they clear it of any leaves and weeds. Then they lay down a stick mat. takes them hundreds of hours, weaving the sticks together. Then they erect these two walls. Really? So it's a love shack? It's It's literally a love shack. Wow. It's got nothing to do with the children. It's got nothing to do with their relationship. They just shag in it. And so what he does to make it even more attractive is he goes around the forest for kilometres collecting blue, purple and white objects. They can be all kinds of things. Before people came here and started polluting the, the earth, they would have been berries and leaves and particular flowers. Now it's clothes pegs and milk tops and bottle tops and pens and all kinds of things. It's got to be the right type of blue, though. They're very picky. Then they lay a little display at the front. They're meticulous. The blue thing has to be in exactly the right spot. The yellow thing has to be in exactly the right spot. The last thing they do is they chew up some bark, and on the inside walls of this little structure, they paint it at about the height that the female's going to be sitting at when she comes to visit. How do they paint it? Birds have tongues. Most people don't know this. They've got a little tongue. And so they pick up some bark and they masticate it. They chew it up in their mouth. Out squirts the side of the beak, this little goo. And they just wipe it. They stroke it. They use their beak like a paintbrush. And they paint the inside of both walls. Now, once it's ready, they stand at the front and they blow up their eyes. So they're bright purple balls. They pick up their favourite blue object. And then they engage in this very complicated robotic dance and song, which includes mimicking the sounds of other species. 
If a female likes that, she'll come down and sit between these two walls. And only then, once she's seen this display, she'll lift up her cloaca and invite him around. <laughs> He'll pop round the back. The wings will beat everywhere. The sticks will fly all over the place. The blue object gets dropped. It's over in two and a half seconds and they never see each other again. Right. Well, that worked for the love shack, the painting, the blue objects, the elaborate dance... And then it's just two seconds. That's it. And she expects, she expects nothing from him except that. She goes up, builds a nest 40 metres in the sky and raises the young. So then you went off to China in 2007. You went to Hainan Island to help preserve an endangered deer. Another amazing animal. The Eld's deer is a tropical deer. So most people think of deer. This is, it looks like a reindeer, effectively. Giant big antlers, big furry thing. In its day, it used to be all across Asia and Southeast Asia, across to India but it lost to habitat, people taking away its habitat to lay crops and build cities, plus the antlers are valuable, so a lot of people would poach it. Uh, in the 80s, early 90s, it got down to about 20 animals left on Earth, and the Chinese government decided that some pretty serious conservation needed to happen. So they literally took those 20, plopped them in a field, built a giant fence around it, armed the guards with guns, and then just let the deer breed. Because if you let them breed, they're like rabbits. They'll just go for it. And slowly over time, the numbers had built up to about 1,600. So I was at the one of the first reserves, and my job was to help them communicate this amazing work they'd done because nobody knew about it. The government had done a marvellous thing saving this animal. So I got sent over as a youth ambassador for development, which was a part of the aid program, to partner with the organisation and see what see where I could help. And I was walking around the reserve one day with my translator, and I was like, what's that little white shed doing? And she's, and in, in her best English, she said, that's where we make the deer wine. And deer I had, wine. Deer wine. And I had no idea what she was talking about. After a bit more research and discussion with other people, it turns out that if you take a deer and you just put it, put it in a big vat and distill it down, have a what? little tap at the bottom, <laughs> you get this potent little red alcohol that you can sell for a large amount of money in very small bottles. And the reserve was doing that a little, a few deer at a time to keep the operation running. So in essence, they were sustainably harvesting a few of the deer to fund the conservation of the rest of the species. See, but I did not know you could do that. You can. Did you, did you try any of it yourself? No. And, no. and this is awkward because I, it would get served. So whenever we went out for official <laughs> banquets or lunches, they, the head of the reserve would hold a tray of the deer wine. And it was very awkward, Richard. I wanted to do it because I wanted to show respect for my guests, but I just couldn't bring myself to drink this endangered species. After that, you went to Beijing to do some research and become a science communicator, doing all kinds of different things. And that's where you met Sana, who became your wife. Tell me about that first meeting you had. So I was in Beijing um, setting up a little business trying to promote science. And this was an exciting time in China. That was post-Olympics. There was energy and funding for science everywhere. I had set up a little business helping Chinese scientists promote their work abroad. And being a zoologist, most of my clients were other zoologists. And for some reason... A large majority of them worked on giant pandas. So I became somewhat of an expert on all the different parts of giant panda research. Everything from their gut to how high they can urinate in a, on a tree to why they prefer not to hang, out, hang around with any other pandas. And so I went into Sana's radio station, where she was a producer, to do an interview on giant pandas. And um, I'd had one phone call with her just before that. No real chemistry just another person ringing me, trying to tee up an interview. But when I got to the studio, there was loads of chemistry. We clicked eyes across the newsroom and she marched straight up to me. And she knew who I was. Uh, there weren't too many foreigners in the newsroom. And she said, so how does one become a panda expert? And I was blown away by that line. And I just thought, this person is awesome. This is love at first sight you're talking about, really. Yeah, it is. It does happen. It does. It does. I didn't believe it. Mm. Honestly, I didn't believe it. We just clicked. Our eyes met. There's got to be pheromones involved, I'm sure of it, as a biologist. Our eyes gl mutually glowed. I sat down. She's quite small, so I actually just had to sit down so we're eye level <laughs> so we could actually have a proper conversation. And I think we just flirted like people do. 
We made little jokes. We talked about maybe going on a date. It all happened really quickly. Right. And and tell me what happened when you followed her back, when you went over to her desk where she was typing away? So she excuses herself and goes back to her desk and she's in um, some messaging system talking to a friend in another country and she's all caps. Oh, my God, I just fell in love. And I walk over... <laughs> Coming up for some, you know, excuse to talk to her more and her computer freezes and in the middle of the page is this message she's just sent that hasn't cleared. And did you see it? No, I didn't. I didn't. She she awkwardly kind of half crawled off the desk towards me to intercept me. But did she try and block it? She did. She right. did, yeah. She tried to block it with her body. It was, it was very awkward. I had no idea. I was rose-coloured tinted. I had no idea what was going on. And um, I didn't see it, thankfully. It wouldn't have changed anything. It would have just confirmed what I was feeling. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Ben, we were talking before about this great life you were having in Beijing, living and working there. You'd met the love of your life, Sana, and you were about to get married. When did you realise something was wrong with your health? I knew for some time, uh, in hindsight, I had just tried to ignore it as best I could. But eventually, I couldn't ignore the symptoms. I had textbook bowel cancer symptoms. I lost weight. I would sweat profusely at night in my sleep, so much so you'd need to change the sheets. I would be constipated one day, have diarrhea the next day, and then be constipated again. Sometimes I would cripple over in abdominal pain, end up on the fetal position. I'd faint, probably because I was anemic, because I was bleeding. But the bleeding was irregular. It wasn't like it was every time I went to the bathroom and it was dramatic every single time. So you can kind of start to make excuses for why this might be this way or this might be that way. Going back to Sana, we'd been together five months when I was diagnosed. This is not the kind of stuff you want to be talking about. You know, you don't... It's not sexy, Richard. No. But also, you're in your, like, late 20s. That's a really unusual age to be getting bowel cancer, isn't it? Very rare. Remains rare, but it is increasing. I was 28 with no family history of cancer. Plus, when you Google it, I mean, blood most of the time is just hemorrhoids, right? It's benign. And... I had been sick many times in China with gastro because I was eating at dodgy restaurants and eating bowls of rice I probably shouldn't have and eating from street corners. And so I just thought I was having a bad run of dodgy food, dodgy dumplings, and that maybe I had a hemorrhoid that was getting angrier. So you went back to Australia and had a colonoscopy. Mm. What did that reveal? Before I went in for the colonoscopy, I um, had a kind of pre-brief with the gastroenterologist and my mum and... Uh, Ian were there. And I said, you know, deep down, I'm really worried that this might be something horrible like cancer. And in a way he said, oh, that's, that's the last thing I'm looking for. Look at you. You're 28. You've got no family history. I don't expect to find cancer. And then you wake up and you're told that they've found something and that it looks a lot like cancer. They can never be sure at that stage because you need to send samples off to get analysed. But based on what he saw down the camera, and he showed me pictures of, this was a big ulcerated tumour sitting in my sigmoid colon. It was so big that he couldn't get the, the, the camera through. He had to pull it out and then use the paediatric camera, the tiny one used for the colons of children. And what's it like to look at, if you don't mind me asking, no, I don't. look at, at an evil tumour like that? Evil is a good word. They look ugly. There were black parts and green parts and there were bits of tissue hanging off it. It didn't look at all like the beautiful, healthy colon around it. This looked wrong. So I raced off. I got a referral and raced off to a surgeon who was extremely optimistic. He hadn't seen the CT scan that I'd had after the colonoscopy, but he'd seen the colonoscopy report and had a look at the samples. 
He was fairly confident he could go in laparoscopically, whip this thing out. You mean like just keyhole surgery? Keyhole surgery, yeah, right. yep. Whip this thing out and get me back to China in about six to eight weeks. That sounded magical to me. I did not want this thing to last. I had a whole life waiting for me back in Beijing. But that's not what happened. What made you want to seek a second opinion? I was um, living with mum, who was in Melbourne at the time, and she was out the back having a chat with one of my aunties about the cancer. And a neighbour heard that phone call. When mum's on the phone, she's quite loud. And the neighbour leaned their head over the fence and said, oh, sorry to hear that, Joe, but Ben should really get a second opinion. I used to work at a cancer hospital. So I rang them up and they very quickly um, ushered me in and I had a consultation with a second surgeon and that was a game changer. Why? What did he tell you? It's what he didn't tell me. So he didn't promise anything. He said, I guess he'd seen enough of this in young people. The thing with young people when they get bowel cancer is they tend to get diagnosed quite late in the illness for the exact reasons I've talked about Because it today. can't be bowel cancer because you're too young, right? You're too young yeah, and yeah. you don't go to the doctor yeah, and you yeah. start exercising more and try a bit of yoga. You do all these <laughs> things. And so you tend to get diagnosed at stage three and four when you're young. So stage three or four meaning it might have gotten into the lymphatic system and, and, spread. Be, and spread metastasized. Yeah, and that's right. important because stage one bowel cancer is 90% curable. The odds on stage three and four are anywhere near that high. So he'd seen enough of this. In fact, he'd done his PhD in young people like me presenting with advanced disease. So he was much more cautious. And he said, I'm not going to promise anything today, which I was actually at the time offended by, right? I wanted answers. He said, I need more scans. And I need to talk about this with colleagues. And you need to come back once I've collected all that information and we talk again. And so I started having those scans and he started speaking to those other experts. And what they realized was that my tumor was much more complicated than what had first been understood. Not only had it almost closed over in the bowel, it had spread around the bowel. It was touching the bladder. It was touching to some of the equipment that gets sperm up from the testes out to the penis. It was nasty. And it looked like maybe a lymph node that was involved as well, which is the stepping stone to it spreading to other organs. How fortunate it was you had then gone for that second opinion to that second doctor. But what happened when you told him about the first surgeon's option, which sounded much easier? He was offended. I informed him that I was he was the second opinion. And I think he didn't enjoy that status. He actually called it um, shopping around at one point. I remember I wrote that down in my diary at the time. Shopping and, around? Yeah. Getting a second opinion on a life-threatening illness? Yeah. That's not shopping around. I think he was after, he was like, I think his impression was I wanted a quick fix, which I did, who wouldn't, and that I was going to get the answer I needed to get that quick fix. And what if that neighbour over the back fence hadn't suggested you get a second opinion? So I see this a lot in the, in the charity work I do now and, and having made friends with cancer. They go in and they realise that the tumour is far more complicated than it looked on the colonoscopy or the CT and you lose a lot more anatomy. And oftentimes you end up with a permanent bag. So I very well may have lost my bladder. Uh, I very well may have lost most of my bowel. And as a result of that, I would be a very different person today. When you came out of surgery, what had you lost? In the end, it wasn't as bad because I'd had some radiation to, to shrink the tumour. And the surgeon didn't want to do keyhole. He wanted a really wide view. He wanted to see all the anatomy. And um, I ended up only losing bit of bowel, so sigmoid, a bit of the large bowel. I lost a bit of the equipment that gets sperm from the testicles out, out the penis, but that didn't matter because I was infertile anyway from the radiation. Permanently uh, so? Permanently. Um, Did you, were you told that would happen before you went in? Uh, different people told me different things. Different people told, said different things. But I erred on the side of caution and took myself off to a clinic to, to put some samples away. Again, a very awkward conversation I had to have with Sana. You know, we're six months together at this stage. I'm talking to her about whether she wants to be a mum one day and whether she would like me to be the dad of that child. But, did we, some, did, but did a medical specialist say to you at the time, uh, someone in the, say, you might want to put some sperm samples aside? At the last minute, a radiation oncologist said that I needed to do that. And it came up because I said, I'm getting mixed mixed advice here about whether I'm actually going to lose my fertility. 
because I was having pelvic radiation. I had a lot of it over about five or six weeks. And the scrotum was in the field. And the therapist who kind of planned my radiation had given me this awkward technique where I'm supposed to grab the testicles and yank them down towards my knees to get them out of the field. While you're being scanned. While I'm being scanned and shot with radiation. It just didn't feel scientific to me. It just didn't feel like it was going to work. And people always say to me, where's the lead apron and why aren't there guards? And they just don't make this stuff for down there. So I knew it was a possibility. The medical professionals, of course, are focused on the primary aspect of the care, which is to scan you properly, receive that information to treat the life-threatening illness. But there are these side issues. So coming out of, out of surgery, which had been successful, mm. there's the morning ward round when teams of doctors zoom around from patient to patient. That left you and a lot of other patients frustrated. Why was that? Frustrated and shell-shocked. It's a rapid thing that happens on a surgical ward. They're different depending on the specialty. But on a surgical ward, they're fast, they're random, and they're confusing. Because not only was I hungry for information, but everyone around me was hungry for information. And they wanted to hear it straight from the doctors. That's natural, right? So this ward round would happen every morning. A bunch of strangers would rock up. Mostly my surgeon was there, so there was a familiar face. But all these other people I didn't know were straight into it, you know, have you passed gas? What are your bowels like? How's your appetite? How's the wound? Rip down the blanket, inspect the wound. Yeah, everything's fine here. And off they go to the next patient. And I was in a shared, a shared room of four beds. So I would see this unfold. Each of us, we'd all line up in our beds and then get whipped around and then it would be over for the day. But you're often left with questions at the end of that. And you don't feel like you can ask them. It feels rushed. And this is the doctor's workplace, right? Like this is their office. You're just kind of lounging around. They've got a job to do. And so you don't feel like you can impose or stop and ask questions even when you've got burning questions about your care. How did the idea that you might want to become a doctor then come into your head? It was during chemotherapy. So I'd had radiation surgery. I had the stoma, I had the bag, and I was in chemotherapy. And it was maybe my fourth or fifth infusion. I remember laying in the chemo chair and my arms out and I'm watching the different bags of chemo dripping all toxic labels all over them. And it just kind of came out of nowhere. You know, perhaps I could be a doctor. Perhaps I could make a difference here. Because the things like the ward round and other, other aspects of care, the, sometimes the way people spoke to me or the fact that I wasn't allowed to look at my own medical file... The, the way the hospital was designed, it, it, these things added up. They made me think that there, there had to be a better way to deliver this kind of care. But that's all it was during chemo. It was just a blip. Later that week, I'd, I was on steroids for the chemotherapy, and they make you an insomniac. Um, they also give you a bit of anxiety. So it was about 2 a.m., and I was pacing the lounge room. Couldn't sleep. I had a banana bread in the oven because I like to cook a lot. And do you bake when you're anxious? I, I do. Hmm. Yeah, I do. And also when you can't sleep, <laughs> it's hmm. a really good thing to do. So I was waiting for the banana bread to rise and it occurred to me again, oh, the, the doctor thing. So I jumped down at my computer and I Googled it. How do you become a doctor? And so I found the practice test, which you need to do to sit the, you know, to get into medical school. And I just played around with it for a couple of hours. I wasn't sleepy. I didn't do very well in the practice exam. There were no questions about medicine. It was poetry and philosophy, physics, chemistry. And I thought, mm, this is hard. Binned it. And then I didn't think about it again for about two and a half years. What brought the thought back again? I had tried to go back to work after cancer too early, partly because we needed to get back on our feet financially. When you're young and you get cancer, there's very little support. So we had to kind of hit the ground running. I went back to my old line of work, but I got agitated not depressed, but definitely down, definitely sad. And I realized it wasn't working for me. So I switched jobs, thinking that was a solution. Same thing happened after about six months. So I took a year off. I was like, I'm just going to start again. And I spent that time exercising, baking banana bread again, thinking. And I realized during that that there was something else I needed to do now. I'd changed and I had to accept that change. And that I was going to put my energy into becoming a doctor going into healthcare as a way to give back. So I felt really grateful for the care I'd received and the fact that I was alive and I wanted to use that. 
But I also wanted to tweak things along the way. So again, I sit down and I Google, how do you become a doctor? And it just so happens that it's the day before the admission test closes, that big scary exam I'd sat and failed. So I register, I pay a fortune to sit at not really knowing what it involves. And I spend the next two months studying and I do okay. And I get accepted to med school. Was part of this because you might have felt different in your own skin after having been through cancer and survived and having parts of your body moved around and changed and having a bag for a while and before that was fixed? Did you have a radically different idea of being a kind of a mind and a body after that whole experience? Absolutely. And that's a really good way to put it. My body had changed markedly. I had big scars. Uh, I was still getting used to using my, my colon again when it, once it was reversed because it was a radically different organ. I still had tingly toes and feet from chemotherapy. I still got tired really easily. I could accept all that and you could see that. But I, I wasn't aware so much of how my mind had changed. And the fact that my relationship with my body was really different, I didn't trust it anymore. I felt like it could let me down. And... I also overnight kind of developed the appreciation that I might die one day, which I think comes much later in life or with other major illness much later in life. But I was, I was 29, 30, and I you know, felt 80 or 90 in that regards. I knew the clock was ticking and I had a sense of my mortality. I had a sense of the fragility of what it means to walk this earth. That's unusual for a guy in his 20s, you're supposed to be doing burnouts and, and, and base jumping off skyscrapers, aren't you? Exactly. <laughs> jumping off bridges rather yeah. than thinking, oh, oh, I am mortal. I was talking about this with my producer earlier. I think, I think most of us, until we had that experience, mm. you go around thinking of your body as this flesh slave for the mind. Yes. You know, it's the flesh slave that obeys you. And you go, well, the flesh slave has rebelled. The flesh slave is doing its own thing. Oh, I must attend to that flesh slave. So you went into medical school to mm. understand what you'd been through and... Also, to look at the system on the inside. What did you see of what happens to people who train to become doctors? People enter medical school for different reasons. Very few people enter because of their own illness. So I was, it was, I was unique. I was rare like that. Most people enter medicine, you know, because they're told to. Oh, they got the marks. They got the marks. Yeah. And it seemed like the best thing to do with their grades. Mm. Their parents are doctors or their parents are in a profession of an equal status. Maybe they're lawyers or judges or something like that. A lot of people go because they care and they want to help. Regardless of why you go in, what happens once you're in there is the teaching system and the teaching style are quite aggressive at times, almost hostile. And well, like tough love, that kind of thing. It's tough love. Yeah. And so your brain changes. The things that, the things that make you human, the, the caring, the compassion, the kindness, they're dialed down because they're not rewarded. Your science result is rewarded. Your anatomy mark is rewarded. Your publications are rewarded. The soft stuff, they call it, which I actually think is the hard stuff, is not rewarded. And so as that's devalued, it's replaced with a cynicism, you know, what we call a compassion fatigue. It's replaced by ego. And I think that's why a lot of junior doctors end up at the end a very different person from the one they went in. And sadly, I think most of them are unaware of that because the people teaching them have been through the same process, and so it looks normal. I've heard from doctors that I've met conversationally, sometimes they take that approach to emotionally distance themselves from their patients deliberately. So yeah. if they start caring for each one of their patients, they'll be a wreck. Um, if they start emotionally engaging yeah. with each one of their patients, knowing that they'll have to deal with death and disappointment and, and failure, it's, it's, it's too dangerous to get too emotionally engaged. What do, you, what do you think about that? I think that doctors say that because they don't know any better and they haven't been taught how to feel but also protect yourself. We just have to look at the other caring professions. A nurse would never say that, right? It'd be very unusual for a nurse to tell you, oh, I can't get too involved with my patients or a psychologist or a social worker or a physiotherapist. A lot of the allied health professions and the caring professions do this and they do it well, and they preserve themselves while giving the kind of care they want. While you were a medical intern in various departments, in oncology to begin with, because I think you wanted to be an oncologist at the outset, you wrote that you started keeping a list of patients to revisit after the morning 
ward rounds to make a, a second visit to some of them. What would you do and who would you, who would you look out for? I'd look out for people that I sensed had unanswered questions. It might be a, a flicker of the eyes or, you know, you, an open mouth going to ask a question and then censoring themselves. Or it might have been particularly difficult news that I don't think was perhaps delivered in the best way. I'd, or someone that kind of struck me like they weren't coping. I'd keep a little list and I'd go and see them myself. I called it my second ward round because the first ward round hadn't done its job it hadn't, for a variety of reasons, a little bit like how when I was a patient, I didn't feel like the ward round had done its job. So I would go and see these people and I would chat to them and often they would have quite profound fundamental questions about their care that they either didn't feel that they could ask or that they, even when asked, didn't understand. Plus, it was a good time to check in on how they were coping. I feel like we don't do that very well in healthcare. Doctors don't always do the best job of checking in to make sure that they're okay with what's happening. Is that because most of the time they're under enormous pressure and they're so rushed? It is. It's partly that. But it's partly their training. So going back to med school, these things aren't taught very well, if at all. And so you leave med school with very good medical knowledge, very good academic knowledge, but the human side is almost secondary. So I think it's partly that they don't have the skills, that the skills aren't rewarded, and partly that they don't have time, even if they did have the skills, to properly implement them. Tell me the story of two patients you called Leslie and Frank, who were elderly patients. They were on your ward when you were working in the geriatric ward as an example of how the system can't really budge and accommodate mm. a human need. You realise when you start, you can have preserved your humanity during training. You can have fought to hold on to it but it's very hard to then actually express it in hospital. So I was working in a busy, busy hospital in Western Sydney, geriatrics, and I had a patient called Leslie, it's not her real name, who was brought in from an aged care facility with a cough. And her partner, uh, Frank, they'd been together maybe 50, 60 years, um, had been brought in a couple of days earlier with a cough. And he went under a different team, under a different ward, different part of the hospital. So we were looking after Leslie and my friends were looking after Frank. Frank turned out to have lung cancer and quite an advanced lung cancer. That was the source of his cough and he didn't have very long left. Leslie's cough was just a mild pneumonia. We could fix that with some antibiotics. And I had this idea that if Frank's time was limited, that maybe I could get them in the same room. So she could be with him while he's dying. Yeah, yeah. We didn't know how long he had. And I thought, I need to try and make this happen. So I raised it to my colleagues on my team, who were beautiful doctors, but a little bit cynical already. And they were like, oh, good luck. That's never going to happen. So I went and spoke to the, the nurse unit manager that runs the ward. And it was just reasons why it shouldn't happen. There wasn't, I think we could do this, or I think this is the right thing to do. It was, I don't have the staff. Oh, this person isn't properly trained to move the bed. We would need to transfer the care. Will, will that ward accept them? It was a barrier, barrier, barrier. Because the system makes it hard to be flexible. The system needs people to come in at a certain path and just follow that path until they're spat out at the end. It's very hard to do anything differently. But the differences, that's where the humanity is, right? That's where the care comes in. Because we're tailoring the experience to the individual. I tried to get Leslie into Frank's room, Frank's ward, and I failed. I couldn't get her there. And a couple of days later, he died. So he died without her while she was in the same hospital, but mm. on a different floor. Yeah. What do you want to see change here, Ben? I want patients and doctors to better understand each other. I think with the system strain, and it's made much worse by the pandemic, both sides are hurting. They're hurting for different reasons, but it's equally affecting the patient-doctor relationship. I want to see that elevated. I want to see that rewarded. I want to see humanity flow both ways because doctors and patients depend on each other. It's a mutualism. And a happy patient is a happy doctor. A happy doctor is a happy patient. Both sides need care. These things will only change if patients and doctors are on the same page and they're at the same table. And that comes from them better understanding each other, working together. 
So you went into the medical system with sort of vague plans to work in oncology. Now you're going into psychiatry instead, obviously because you can have a conversation with your patient and that's kind of expected as part of the treatment. So I suppose the obligatory question is, how did that make you feel, Ben? How are you feeling about doing psychiatry? That's excellent. Uh, I'm feeling great. To be honest with you, I was at risk of becoming quite cynical at medical school because I lost faith in the doctor side of things. I thought medicine was cookie cutter. It was checkbox. I thought the things that mattered weren't being rewarded. When I went into psychiatry as a junior, I just felt like there was a bit more emphasis on the whole person. They're still doctors, right? And they still have all the problems that doctors have. But you're given permission to connect. You're, you're actually rewarded for that. In psychiatry, we call it, we don't call it a doctor-patient relationship. We call it an alliance. And I think that's a beautiful thing that the rest of medicine can learn from. Throughout this whole process of you being diagnosed and then treated and having being operated on and then going through chemo and going through medical school and becoming a doctor, in this whole process, you and Sana got married. And because of that sperm that was kept aside, you've been able to have a, a baby together. How's it going? It's lovely. It is so lovely. Again, I was heavily in the health system as a patient, as, as was she, because we had to use IVF because, you know, I can't make sperm anymore. And that has its own issues, its own drama. But we came out at the end with a little embryo, and that embryo survived, and he's Everin, and he's two now. And uh, we're just so happy with him. And now that you have the medical knowledge and you know much more about the body and how it works and certainly how the body responds to cancer, do you feel like you have a different relationship to your flesh self, your flesh slave that you're inhabiting at the moment? So from that distrust comes a new respect I am more careful about what I do. You know, I try, try not to drink too much alcohol and I've got a different motivation now. I try not to eat too much red meat. These are important things for bowel cancer. So I, I look after it and I also value the mind-body connection. I look for experiences that nurture both and I, I do that much more readily and with less guilt than, than I did before. It's been great to speak with you, Ben, and thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Ben Bravery's book is called The Patient Doctor. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.